1: bruce nolan you can find me on twitter and instagram at bruce exclusive welcome back today's episode is going to be entirely made up of almighty takes that i have collected over the past couple of weeks because the maneuvers are going to start happening roster moves cuts restructures free agent signings are all going to start happening here in the next two weeks Because two weeks from this week is the beginning of free agency. In fact, it's currently Wednesday the 3rd. So two weeks from exactly today is the official opening of free agency. Although the quote-unquote legal tampering period starts before that. And before we even go into any of the takes today, I have something to say that's related to the opening of free agency week. Buffalo rumblings has brought on some ringers recently, and there's going to be some additional content coming to not only the podcast network, but also YouTube. Sunday, Monday, Wednesday of every week, starting the week of free agency, you are going to get live YouTube shows in addition to a smattering of other content from Jay Spence, the King, and our recent addition, Joe Miller. They're going to combine for Hump Day Hotline on Wednesday. Code of Conduct will be live on Monday evenings. Joe Miller's Overreaction podcast will be live on Sunday evenings. And that's the tentative schedule for right now. So if you have not done so already, make sure you are both subscribed to the Buffalo Rumblings Podcast Network, where you're listening to this right now, but also to the Buffalo Rumblings YouTube channel, because you're going to get live content there that will then be released in audio form as a podcast later on. Speaking of live, if you're listening to this the day it drops on Thursday, the 4th, I will be live tonight on the Locker Room app. On your phone, you can go to the Locker Room app. You can find my show. You can find me on Twitter. I will tweet out the link to join you live on Thursday the 4th at 7 p.m. So, little housekeeping there. Join me live. Subscribe to the YouTube channel so you can join them live. We got some cool things happening at Buffalo Rumblings, and we're really excited about it. I was going to do an entire segment on J.J. Watt signing with the Cardinals, but I'm not going to. Because we're on to Cincinnati. Get it? Get the joke? Because Bill Belichick said we're on to Cincinnati. And my piece was about Cincinnati pass rusher, Carl Lawson, and how he should be the next target after J. You know what? Okay, bad joke. Bad joke. Moving along. Moving along. Just pretend I didn't say that. It's, it's great. First almighty take comes from Sean. And it's short and sweet. Gotta get Zach Ertz to teach you Dawson Knox. Okay, so. There has been a lot of discussion about tight ends this particular offseason, whether or not you want to draft one, whether or not you want to sign one. I have no problem with investing in a tight end, mostly because I have openly said that I would like 12 personnel to be a more viable option because the bills are going to run it. It's going to happen. They ran it last year when the second tight end in 12 was not a receiving threat at all. And that was Lee Smith because they didn't activate Knox and Croft together super often last year. So there were times when they ran 12, even though the second tight end was basically no receiving threat at all. And don't give me the, you know, he's wide open on the tight end leak and he rumbles down the field. That that's That's not a threat <laughs> downfield. That doesn't count. So if they ran 12 personnel with the idea that one of the tight ends they were using was not a receiving threat, then clearly it's something they're going to do. Regardless, they want to be multiple. Now, they're going to run a lot of 10. They're going to run a lot of 11. That's just the basis of this offense. But I would like 12 to be more viable. That doesn't mean I want to run it primarily. That doesn't mean that I want to run it exclusively. That doesn't mean I want to run it a ton. But I would like it to be a viable option. However, it's weird because... You don't know how often you're going to run it. And if you're not going to put a second tight end on the field all that often, then you're left with different questions. Let's assume for a second we run 12 personnel as often in 2021 as we did in 2020, which would be 8% of the time. Do you really want to invest 8 to 10 to $12 million average annual value in a second tight end? who's on the field 8% of the time? Well, no, Bruce, I want that signed person, Zach Ertz or Johnu Smith or whoever it is, to be the tight end one, and I want Dawson Knox to be tight end two. Okay, well, that's a completely separate discussion. So there's layers to this. How much you think tight end is a need and how much capital, whether that's draft or salary capital, you want to devote to it is primarily based on how you feel about the projection of Dawson Knox or how much 12 personnel you want to run. So if you want to be a 12 personnel based offense, if you want to run it 25% of the time, then I would probably question that if you're going to keep John Brown. So there's all these levels of questions It's not as simple as, I want to spend this money on a tight end or I want to spend this draft pick on a tight end. Okay, tell me what you want to do with them. Do you want them to be tight end two? Do you want them to be tight end one? If you want them to be tight end one, are you giving up on Knox? If you want them to be tight end two, how much do you want to run 12? If you want to run 12 a lot, then do you want to run 11 and 10 less often? Because Josh Allen was really successful doing that. In addition, the Bills wide receiver group could be the strength with Diggs and Brown and Beasley and Gabe Davis. So personnel groupings, I've said this before, are essentially a math equation. You take the effectiveness of the offensive player on the field minus the effectiveness of the player that they were subbed for. And then you take that and compare it to the effectiveness of the opposing defensive player currently on the field minus the effectiveness of the player that they were subbed for. So how much gain or loss in effectiveness are you getting as an offense versus how much gain or loss the defense is getting in effectiveness? So let's kind of throw this out as an example, okay? So let's say that you put a really, really good tight end on the field with 12 personnel. You went from 11 to 12. You added a tight end. Well, that means you subtracted a slot receiver because you were in 11 and you went to 12. So you subtracted a slot receiver and you added a second tight end. And let's say the slot receiver was good. He was a seven in effectiveness, seven out of 10. Great. And the player that you brought in for him, the tight end, was okay. Tight end. He was a five. So you lost two points of effectiveness. You took a seven off the field and you put on a five. Well, gosh, Bruce, why would you ever do that? Well, Let's say that their nickel corner is one of the best in the game. Let's say it's Marlon Humphrey, just for the sake of this argument. He's a great, great slot corner. Let's say he was a nine, and they took him off the field when you went to 12 personnel. And now they put on a third linebacker, and the third linebacker's kind of below average. He's a four. So you lost two points of effectiveness. You went from a seven to a five. But they as a defense, lost five points of effectiveness. They went from a nine to a four. That surplus is positive for the offense. That's a net positive. Yes, you put a lesser player on the field, but they put a more significant drop in talent on the field. That's kind of how personnel groupings work. It's not just about what you do. It's about what they counter with. One of the reasons why there is this push for athletic, positionless sub-defenders is so defenses don't get caught in situations like this. But not every team has that player. So it's valuable to have talent at the second tight end position or the first tight end position if your patience with Dawson Knox has run out. Mine hasn't. We were willing to give Josh Allen multiple years. I don't know why we're not willing to give Dawson Knox multiple years. He was just as raw, if not more raw, coming out of college than Josh Allen was as a quarterback. But this is all the things that your head kind of gets into when you talk about tight ends. I realize this is a very long response to a very, very short question. But I want to make sure we talk about it because if you think that Dawson Knox needs to be benched, then I can understand why you want to bring in Zach Ertz or Kyle Rudolph. I don't think he needs to be benched. I'm okay drafting a tight end. I don't really need to spend $8 million a year or $9 million a year on a tight end because either you put him in at tight end two, in which case you're only really playing him eight, 10% of the snaps, which isn't enough to justify the contract you gave him or you're benching Dawson Knox, which I don't think is wise given the physical tools. I think we should give him more time or you're running a lot more 12 personnel, which is, probably getting the best group on the Bills, which is their wide receiver group, off the field more often. So I don't really think there's a path that would make me super happy with that investment. I mean, it's nice to have another weapon. I like that. That's good. I would just rather draft one than sign one, especially given the limited resources that the Bills have. I don't have a problem with it. But there's another factor of this, and that's I don't know if you necessarily need someone to to mentor Dawson Knox going into year three. I mean, it's year three. It's the same reason why I don't want to bring in somebody to mentor Josh Allen. He's going into year four. You don't need to mentor Josh Allen. Bring in a backup quarterback who can actually play instead of a backup quarterback who can mentor. He's graduated past that. Moving along. Next take. Padden says, Bruce, watching social media and listening to some content creators, I feel like there's an overemphasis on improving the defense this season. While I do think improvements are needed, CB2, linebacker if we lose Milano, interior defensive line, if it comes at the expense of the offense, I think it's a mistake. Specifically, I feel it's very important we emphasize shoring up the offensive line and keeping Josh Allen upright. Allen's time to throw is one of the higher ones in the league, and while he has shown he can process quicker, I think he is at his most effective when he is given that extra time. Getting Darrell Williams back at the right price should be a priority. That is what the AFC Championship game demonstrated to me. Instead of chasing a way to stop Patrick Mahomes and one of the fastest people on the planet, let's make other teams continue to focus on stopping Josh Allen. Part of our defensive regression in 2020 can be attributed to us facing much tougher opponents and the league in general having a defensive regression. We weren't facing backup or failing quarterbacks nearly as often in 2020 as we did in 2019, We had notable defensive injuries in 2020 that we didn't have in 2019, and thus I believe our defensive, quote-unquote, regression is actually closer to what their floor is, regards Patton. Patton, I agree with you. I have said before that I think Darrell Williams is priority re-signing material for me, mostly because the right tackle position for the Buffalo Bills hasn't been good since ever. (laughs) I did an article on buffalorumblings.com where I threw out some of the names like Sean Shaw, Henderson and Eric Piers, and it really hasn't been good since about 2005. I don't think a complete defensive overhaul is necessary. I do think that a step forward from Tremaine Edmonds would help take care of a lot of things. I think a step forward from Ed Oliver would help take care of a lot of things. And I do think that there can be improvement in the edge. I think what the floor is for the Buffalo Bills defense in 2021 is largely dependent on the progression of three players, Edmonds, Oliver, A.J. Epinesa. If those three players live up to billing and A.J. Epinesa becomes the guy who a lot of people were back and forth with, whether or not it was him or Chase Young coming into the next year, there was a lot of discussions about that. I know it sounds crazy to think about it right now, but there were actually discussions about that. If those three players become in-back players, I think that covers up a lot of other things. Now, I'm always going to pound the table for CB2. Always. Because that's just, that's a Bruce thing. It's on brand. Hashtag for the brand. That's what Bruce does. He wants better covermen. He always wants better covermen. He wants better athletes. I think that one of the things the Kansas City game showed us with that, but we got to be careful not to overreact to one game. So I'm with you. I do think the number one priority here should be Daryl Williams. Chris said, if the Bills love the leadership of Barkley so much and think he serves as a good coach for Allen, why not just make him a coach? No salary cap costs for paying a coach. Chris, you're preaching the choir. The idea of having Matt Barkley back because he serves as a good sounding board for Josh Allen and that's it. We don't care at all about how he actually plays on the field is doesn't fly with me. That theory does not fly with me. The backup quarterback at this point in Josh Allen's career should no longer be giving him little tips and trades or showing him how to be a pro the way that Derek Anderson showed Josh Allen his first year. And Josh Allen was an MVP candidate last year. I'm not saying he can't grow. I'm saying Matt Barkley probably can't teach him anything at this point. If he's really that good, make him a coach. I agree. Next take is from Mike. Mike says... Good afternoon. Love the podcast. Even in the off season, I look forward to Thursday and Friday. Keep up the great work. I don't have an interesting how I became a Bills fan story. I grew up in upstate New York during the Super Bowl years. I have, however, got my wife on board. She's from Mississippi and grew up a Saints fan. She now says things like, "Who do we play this week?" So I'll take it as a win. Yeah, when they start saying "we" referring to the team, which occasionally I will slip up and say that, then you know, you know, you've got the hooks in at that point. Mike asked a question to me about ownership, NFL ownership, sports ownership in general. And how do you strike a balance between supporting an organization and understanding that it's a business and the business owners might not always do things that you agree with? And I think this is a fascinating topic and I want to touch on it briefly before we go to a commercial. Everybody has their own lines when it comes to things like this. There are some people who will not support certain businesses because they disagree with the business practice or the personal practices of the people who own them. That's going to happen at some point. There are some people who refuse to buy products from Amazon because they don't like Jeff Bezos. There are plenty of people who refuse to follow certain sports teams because they don't like the ownership. People who refuse to root for the Washington football team because they don't like Dan Snyder. Things like that. And my response to this is that everybody has their own line. Everyone has things that are emotionally salient to them. And what I found is that you can't be outraged about everything all the time. It's just too exhausting. You cannot look up the owner of every product you consume and try to go through their history to try to figure out if they had any bad business practices or do things you disagree with on a moral level. You just can't. You just cannot do it. There's not enough hours in the day to be able to think about this. Oh, and I bought this microphone or this computer or Audacity that I'm using right now to record this podcast or the email program, my Yahoo email that I use. I I can't do it. I can't look up the board of directors or the owners or the major stakeholders in all those companies and just make my business decisions based on that. Some people have specific lines where they draw it and go, you know what, I'm out. I'm out because of this. And I'm completely okay with that. Outrage, much like pretty much anything else in our lives, is essentially a currency. Let me repeat that. Outrage, like a lot of other things in our lives, is a currency. Our lives are spent accumulating it and spending it And the value of it is determined by the method by which we accumulate it and the things we spend it on. That's important. The outrage is determined in value by the things we spend it on. So I can choose to spend my outrage on things that matter to me. They're emotionally salient to me. And I can't tell you what you should have as your emotional salience. I can't tell you where to draw your line. We have a bad habit about that in this society. We try to tell other people what should matter to them. But I can't be outraged all the time. I just can't. It's too exhausting. I have to pick the things that matter to me. And if you are somebody who says, I refuse to root for the Washington football team because of Dan Snyder, then that's okay. You can do that. If you're someone who says, I refuse to root for or buy or consume a specific product because I don't agree with the business practices, that's okay. You are using the power of your dollar and you're using the resources you have, your time and your money, and you're withholding them because you don't want to support that. That's fine. I'm completely okay with it. So I understand that might seem like a little strange of an answer. But the truth is that everyone has their own thing. I can support a team and not love their ownership to a point. I can support a lot of things and not necessarily like their owner. I can buy things from companies and not love the owner of that company. I can buy products and services and not love the owner of that company. Everybody's got a line. I have a line. Everyone has a line where it's no longer tenable. It's a value proposition. What I give versus what I get. And as long as I continue to have services and products rendered to me from that company, I clearly view that as a positive value proposition for me personally. There may come a day where that's no longer true anymore, in which case I will stop buying products and services from that company or consuming the products and services from that company. Plenty of people give up on fandom because the ownership is a disaster of their sports team that they like. And they just say, I just can't do it anymore. They treat themselves like consumers. And the problem is we've surrounded ourselves with this weird culture where now we like say, like, you're not a real fan. Like, we're going to bully them into consuming this product that they don't want to consume anymore because they feel like they're being taken advantage of because their team's not trying to win. It's not even incompetency. It's they're not even trying. That person should be allowed to not consume that product anymore and go somewhere else. So that's how I feel about ownership. In sports and the way that it is connected to people's fandom. I hope that answers your question, Mike. I hope I was able to touch on that in a digestible manner. We are going to take a quick break. We are going to come back. We've got more takes. Stick with me. We'll be right back. Support for this show comes from
0: Sylvan Learning. As a parent, you want your child to have every opportunity, but giving them the tools they need to tackle every challenge, that takes a team.
1: Welcome back, everybody, and thank you for joining me for this edition of the Bruce Exclusive of Buffalo Rumblings podcast. I'm your host, Bruce Nolan. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Bruce Exclusive. Welcome back. We talked about tight ends. We talked about ownership. We talked about consumption, outrage is a currency. Now we're going to talk about salary cap. DK says, Bruce, highly probable. Brandon Bean is a salary cap ninja and creates 40 million in salary cap space before cutting Mitch Morse or John Brown. After listening to Greg Tomsetts' Cover 1 podcast on the salary cap, my work is attached. He attached it, I read it. I also find it highly probable that John Brown's contract is either extended, restructured, or he is cut. Those options are listed below as well. As you can see, I started with a $180 million cap along with our rollover and started with what Spotrac would have our salary cap at if we kept all of our current roster many of whom at the bottom won't make it and will be replaced by draft picks, which should save us $7 million or so, and then our draft class would eventually cost us about 5 or $6 million to sign. Okay, this is one of the reasons why I wanted to make sure that I had this discussion before Brandon Bean started doing things. Brandon Bean can create a bunch of space through restructures. The salary cap is real, and it can be manipulated. We were talking about this a little bit on Twitter today. As a reminder, I'm recording this on Wednesday the 3rd. We were talking about a little bit on Twitter, and I made this analogy when it comes to the salary cap. I said that the NFL salary cap can and should be manipulated, and it is a contributing factor in roster decisions, but not the only factor. I always take contention with extreme statements like the cap isn't real or running backs don't matter. Yeah, running backs matter. They just don't matter a lot. The cap is real. It's just flexible. Every salary cap manipulation creates less room for manipulation in the future. Unless it's just a straight pay cut. Unless you're just convincing someone to take a pay cut. Every salary cap manipulation creates less room for manipulation in the future. Now, those manipulations in the future that you're losing can be partially or totally offset by the rise in the cap over time. What that means is that Every time you make a manipulation, your future flexibility is constricted. But every time it goes up, as far as the cap goes, your future ability to manipulate expands. So as long as the input is equal to or less than the output, then the bucket of water stays full. Think about it like a bucket of water. If you have a bucket of water, it has a leak in the bottom of it. As long as the amount of water you're putting in the bucket is equal to Or greater than the amount of water coming out the bottom of the bucket, then the bucket will stay full. It's the same way with the salary cap manipulation. Constriction that you create in future years due to manipulation must be equal to or less than the expansion due to revenue increase. That way you maintain available movement. If you are constricting it due to restructures and manipulation, much more. Then it is expanding due to revenue increases, then you lose flexibility, which is what the Saints are going through right now. They've done it for a long time, and they were able to keep up with it because the salary cap kept going up. And this year, the salary cap didn't go up. So now they're looking to trade Malcolm Brown and they're cutting players. And they restructured Drew Breezes to spread out the cap hit. And now hopefully he retires for them so that they can try to deal with that. So I'm okay with manipulations, but if it's not a straight pay cut, a lot of those manipulations are crystallizing that contract for you as a team moving forward. So if you make an adjustment that is just straight salary to signing bonus, if you do that, congratulations, you created some space this year and that's good. But now you've restricted your mobility when it comes to that same contract next year. I mentioned this in regards to Starla Tulele. Starla Tulele's contract is uncuttable for 2021. You can't get rid of him. It costs you more to get rid of him than it does to keep him on the roster. And then in 2022, it's still five plus dead cap in millions. So he's probably going to be on the roster for 21 and 22. And that wouldn't have been the case had he not agreed to a restructured contract before last year. So, we can create $40 million in cap space. I don't necessarily think we should. I think there are some maneuvers. I've talked about the John Brown extension, adding another year on his deal. I think it's a great idea. I want John Brown for this year and next year. So, I'm all about it. But I don't think that all the maneuvers that are necessary to create $40 million in cap space necessarily should be done. Kevin says... Good morning, you amazing witness protection program of Bill's content creation. My almighty takes are as follows. The answer at running back is already in the building, likely on the practice squad. Two, Dawson Knox will take a significant step forward in year three, but the Bill's still add a veteran tight end this offseason. Three, John Brown is still a Bill in 2021. Four, in an uncharacteristic move, they address CB2 in day two after trading back and picking up a guard with their first pick. Love the content. Have an excellent day. Oh my goodness, Kevin, you are speaking to my heart right now. Not making an addition to the running back room and having the answer in the building would be awesome. Having Dawson Knox take a significant step forward, but adding a veteran tight end this offseason is okay. As long as the veteran isn't expensive, I'm fine with it. You know, take a couple million, get another tight end, then you draft somebody. I'm fine with that. John Brown still being a bill in 2021, I'm for it. Addressing CB2 in day two, hopefully with an athlete. The only thing your take is missing here to really speak to my heart, Kevin, is that you tell me that the cornerback that they addressed on day two of the draft is a really good athlete. That would be amazing. So let's start with probabilities. The answer running backs already in the building, likely on the practice squad. I think this is somewhat probable. I don't know if they're necessarily going to spend draft capital on a running back after spending third round picks two years in a row in Devin Singletary and Zach Moss. Dawson Knox takes a significant step forward in year three, but the bills still add veteran tight end. I think that's somewhat probable. John Brown still being a bill. I'm going to say somewhat improbable. I want him to be, but I think they're going to be okay rolling with Gabriel Davis. I hope I'm wrong, but I think it's just too tempting. $7.9 million is too tempting for them. Now, I would argue that's probably bad because, you know, Trent Murphy being active for a couple games in 2020 is not worth John Brown to me. But, you know, teams make decisions I disagree with all the time. And number four, I'm gonna say I'm gonna say highly improbable. I just don't see it. I don't see them drafting a corner really high. I'd love to be wrong. I will be excited. I have a feeling that if the Bills were to draft an athletic corner on day two, my mentions on Twitter will absolutely blow up. People are like, Bruce, I'm so happy for you. I'll just start crying. I'd like to thank the Academy. It'd be a whole thing. That'd be fun. Moving along. Pellet one on Instagram says, Hey Bruce, I was thinking about the cap, and you seem to be the perfect person to dive into the question. With the salary cap settling in around 180, Every team will have to make some cuts or not resign players. For us, that means not re-signing Norman, Trent Murphy, hard cuts like John Brown, maybe not sign Milano. John Brown and Milano are going to be on an NFL roster, as will several of our cuts. The talk is that we can't pay massive contracts, but won't that be the case for literally everyone? Every team will have to do their version of cutting someone like John Brown, and if the money isn't there to pay him, say $8 million, it generally won't be anywhere. Won't this issue universally affect all teams and there will then be a gluttony of really good NFL players sitting around who we can sign on the cheap? If every single player gets prior market value, then every team will be over the cap, right? In that case, there's nothing to worry about, right? Okay. So the initial assumption that this affects every team equally is true because every team has the same salary cap. So it affects every team equally, but it doesn't hurt every team equally. Let me say that again. It affects every team equally, but it does not hurt every team equally. And the reason that is, is because there are teams who have a lot of cap space. There's not a lot of them, but there are teams that have a lot of cap space. The Jaguars, the Jets, the Patriots, the Colts. These teams the Broncos, the football team, the Bengals, the Panthers, the Dolphins, the Chargers, the Texans, the Ravens, the Browns, the Bucks, the Cowboys. They have cap space. Now, the Cowboys have a whole thing with Dak Prescott going on, so that's a whole different ball of wax because their cap space will essentially be gone if they decide to tag Prescott again. But there are teams who have cap space. I think what you're going to see this year is you're going to see the margin for error for good players who are being played very well to be thinner. We've already seen it with Miami and Kyle Van Noy. So I mentioned to you previously when we were talking about the Book of Bruce... Go back and listen to the Book of Bruce podcast if you haven't. I outline my theories on roster building. So a lot of the things that I say are based on the principles that are found in that podcast. That value is important. What the contribution is that you're getting from a player relative to their cap hit is what you determine to be value. And I think previous years, you might have someone who was a good player, who was being paid like a very good player at their position, and maybe the team would have let that slide but not this year. I think that's what you're going to see. We already saw it. Kyle Van Noy. He's a good linebacker. He was being paid like a very good linebacker and the Dolphins cut him. Struggle with injuries a little bit this year. He'll have a job. He's a good player who is being paid like a very good player. And historically, teams would kind of let that slide because they'd have room. But as you start to lose resource allocations, your tolerance for values that don't line up goes down. This is my discussion about the cap being real. The cap is real because that's someone who probably wouldn't have gotten cut in previous years. Having a good player who's paid like a very good player, a little bit of an overpayment, I would say, is completely reasonable and happens all the time on tons of contracts across the entire NFL. And you can get away with that stuff if you have cap room. This is why value is so important. This is why draft picks matter. Draft picks matter because there's no better value than a really good player on a rookie deal. Because rookie deals are never equivalent with market deals. So that value, that gap between the performance you're getting from a player and the cap hit of their contract being so far in the team's favor is like the best value in sports. But... You can have less and less and less of the negative values when cap space is limited. And some teams, like the Jaguars and the Jets and the Patriots and the Colts, these teams are going to be able to spend. They're going to be able to spend. So it does affect every team equally, but doesn't hurt every team equally. The Bills are 22nd in cap space right now as of SpotTrack.com's today, 3-3-2021. So yes, it affects everybody because they all have the same cap, but not everybody's got the same cap space. So I hope that answers the question and the take from Jay Pellet on Instagram. I appreciate that, by the way. Low Buffa says, hey, Bruce, this really isn't a take, but it's a question for our adjunct Bill's statistics professor. The question has to do with evaluating statistics we utilize. Many folks, quote, pass, rush, win rate, which has the Bills doing pretty well when confronted with complaints about the Bills defensive line. My untrained eyes would watch the Bills and find that stat dubious. In statistical contrast, Joe Marino used a pressure rate stat on his Tuesday pod that put the Bills in the bottom eight of the league. That seems more in line with what I thought I saw, but I hope to use stats to examine my perception of reality and don't want to use my perception of reality to evaluate stats. Maybe it's inescapable once you dive into deeper, more subjective analytics, but hopefully there's there a way for the football layman to evaluate the validity of a given statistical model. So what's your process, I know you have a process, for assessing the validity of relative statistics? Okay, in regards to pass rush, I have a very similar theory to my theory on quarterbacks. For those of you who have not had an opportunity, please go back and listen to the second helping of QB Stew, which is a podcast from earlier this offseason. QB Stew is a composite, and it's used as a metric composite to evaluate quarterbacks, mostly because I accept that each individual metric we use to evaluate quarterbacks is intrinsically flawed. It's the same thing with pass rush. The more, the merrier, as long as we recognize that we're specifically choosing metrics because of their utilization win rate. So pass, rush, win rate has a factor built into it that pressure statistics necessarily don't, and that is time. Pass, rush, win rate is about beating your block in two and a half seconds. Now, beating your block is subjective. Two and a half seconds is not subjective, but whether or not someone beat their block in two and a half seconds is subjective. So that's important. Pressure rates are determined by what percentage of the NFL pass attempts against the defense got pressure. How can those two things coexist? Well, pass rush win rate, again, has time, and pressure rates do not. What does that mean? people were getting out the ball fast against the Bills and they didn't get pressure. But if you had a quarterback who would hold the ball for more than two and a half seconds, chances are someone would come free. Both of those things can simultaneously be true if we understand what they're measuring. So it's not a matter of pass rush win rate being a slam dunk conclusive, hey, look, this team was awesome. And then the pressure rate statistics saying the team was not awesome. It's not one or the other, it's both, because neither one of them is measuring the same thing. Yes, they're measuring pass rush effectiveness, but they're measuring in different ways and in different scenarios. So my answer is always both. It's dive into the statistic, recognize the subjectivity, but then also recognize what one measures that the other doesn't. We did this with quarterback statistics. Inevitably, there's gonna be something that is measured one way, And then you go over this metric and it accommodates for something that your previous metric didn't. You're going to have that. So the important thing is just to understand that they are all a small piece of the puzzle. And I assess their validity by recognizing intrinsically that they're all flawed. But if they hold up to other sort of metrics, if there's not metrics that openly conflict with each other, then I'm okay with it. So that's how I use them kind of in concert with another metric because they might appear like they're in conflict with each other, but they're usually not. They're usually not in conflict at all. They're just measuring different things. It's like passer rating and PFF grade. They're not going to look the same because they're measuring different things. They care about different things. As long as you take the time to understand what it is, then you're okay. This would all be better if we just wouldn't quote and cite statistics that we don't know what they mean. That would be just better off right across the board. If we just took the time to understand the metric that we're quoting before we quote it, this would eliminate a lot of issues. Mike says, Bruce, three questions before free agency. Three players and their status. Number one, Lee Smith. Is he going to retire? We heard rumors about it. He might retire. Is Star coming back for 2021? Everything that I've heard said he is. How is John Brown's health? Everything I've seen indicates he's fine. I think those three questions need to be answered before free agency and or the draft. If Lee Smith retires, then not only is some cap money freed up, but it may also change what the team looks for in a tight end. Kyle Rudolph may be a better fit to be not only a blocking tight end, but a better receiver than Lee Smith, which leaves Dawson Knox the opportunity to create downfield. If Starr comes back, it fills the need at one tech, which will give the Oliver the opportunity to explode this year at three tech. If John Brown is healthy, I think the move is to make a restructure his contract as he gives the bills another deep threat and is still a very good wide receiver. If hurt, I may have to move on. I agree with you, Mike. I kind of sprinkled in the ideas about Smith star and John Brown. Really decision-making is a lot like a flow chart. Certain questions have to be answered before other questions that are based on those answers can be answered. There's a chronology to these things. Problem solving in general is a chronology. It's a flow chart. Do we need to address tight end? Yes. No. Okay. Well, that's based on is Lee Smith going to retire? Yes. No. If he doesn't retire, do we want to cut him? Yes. No. And you move on from there. So I do think Lee Smith's probably going to retire. Most of the time when you start Hinting at it, unless you're a quarterback. (laughs) Most of the time when you start hinting at it, you usually do it. But I would think that he would probably have let the team know his intentions and probably already knows where they're going to go. If he doesn't retire, I would move on. I would cut him and get the two million. Everything I've seen indicates that Star Latule is coming back. How is John Brown's health? Everything I've seen indicates that he's okay. And I agree with you. I do want to extend John Brown rather than cut him. Ladies and gentlemen, 42 minutes of takes. Now you understand why I had to do it. Why I had to do an entire episode full of just takes. Make sure you come see me tonight. If you're listening to this on Thursday, the third, come see me tonight, seven o'clock PM locker room at find me on Twitter. And I will tweet out the invitation to jump into the locker room app and chat with me. We'll do some live takes. It'll be fun. But until then, Or next time, whenever I talk to you next. That's the way the cookie crumbles. I'm Bruce Nolan, Buffalo Rumblings.